Well, we're in the, uh, the final part of this message series called Person of Interest. Please do pull out your message outline uh, as, we, as you follow with me through this message this morning. And of course, the person of interest, as we've been saying over these last, uh, well, seven, eight weeks, really, uh, the person of interest, of course, is Jesus Christ. He is the most significant person in all of history. And uh, if you've been with us, you will know that we've been following along with the Gospel writer John as he himself journeys with Jesus. And John, in his Gospel, doesn't simply tell us what happens. John tells us, in fact, he, we, we read it a moment or so ago, he says, I have an agenda. And I want you to arrive at the same conclusion about Jesus as I did. And the only way to help you arrive at that conclusion is to tell you what I saw, to present to you the evidence. And so what John does, as we've been saying over these last seven weeks or so, uh, what John does is he organises the account of the life of Jesus around seven signs. Miracles, healings, things like that, but seven signs that point to something really important. Now, through this series, what I've been kind of trying to do is sort of to lead you to ask a really important question. And it's a question that everybody should ask. And if you haven't asked it, you should ask it. This is a question that everybody should ask at some point in their life. And what we're going to do today is we're going to look at all the evidence, really, that points to the answer to the question. And the question simply is this, who is Jesus? That's the question. And the resurrection, this is so important, the resurrection is what convinced his first century followers that he was, Jesus was in fact the Messiah, that he was the Son of God, that he was God in a body. And the resurrection has been convincing people ever since. Now here's something you need to know. Christians believe that Jesus rose from the dead because a first century follower of Jesus named Matthew documented the life of Jesus and the resurrection. And we believe because a Greek named Mark, who was a friend of Peter, got Peter's story, uh, got in and out of Peter, and, and Peter concluded in the first century uh, that Peter said he was telling the truth and Mark documents everything that Peter tells him in his gospel that Jesus actually did rise from the dead. And we believe, because a doctor named Luke, who was also a Greek, who travelled around the area of Judea and travelled around the world with the Apostle Paul, came to the conclusion that he'd met enough people who'd seen the resurrected Jesus, that Jesus was alive, and he gave us an account of the life of Jesus, of his death and his resurrection, that we call the Gospel of Luke. And we believe because the Apostle Peter, in two letters that he left the first century church, declared that Jesus rose from the dead. And we believe Jesus rose from the dead because James, the brother of Jesus, concluded his brother was his Lord. Now what's really interesting about James is that James did not believe Jesus was his Lord when Jesus was doing his earthly ministry. He was not impressed by his sermons. He wasn't impressed by his miracles. But James, the brother of Jesus, shows up as the pastor of the church in Jerusalem and he was stoned, he was killed, he was massacred because he will not go along with the religious tradition. Because he insists that his brother, his crucified brother, who rose from the dead, was his saviour and his lord. 
And we believe because the Apostle Paul, who stepped onto the pages of history as someone who was committed to doing away with the church, concluded that Jesus was in fact the Messiah, he was the Son of God, and that he actually rose from the dead. And he knew this because of a personal encounter, a personal revelation with Jesus Christ, and because he spent so much time with Peter and Andrew and James and John and James, the brother of Jesus. And these extraordinary brave men documented what they saw and what they heard. And they documented what they heard from others who had also seen the resurrected Jesus. And these documents were collected and they were protected. And many years later they were combined and they were put into a volume that we call the New Testament. There were men who were witnesses of and friends of witnesses of the resurrection of Jesus. And besides that, the story of Jesus wasn't worth, even worth telling or even documenting apart from the resurrection. Apart from the resurrection, Jesus was just another Jewish rabbi that kind of went off the rails. Apart from the resurrection, Jesus is just another wannabe Messiah who was ex- executed by Rome. They come and they go. And the people who were closest to Jesus are so excruciatingly honest. In fact, it's one of the reasons you should take their accounts seriously. They do not write themselves into the story as heroes in the story. They write themselves into the story as doubters. Because, in fact, they doubted. They doubted that Jesus was the Messiah. They expect, and the only way to help you arrive at that conclusion is to tell you what I saw, to present to you the evidence. And so what John does, as we've been saying over these last seven weeks or so, uh, what John does is he organises the account of the life of Jesus around seven signs, miracles, healings, things like that, but seven signs that point to something really important. Now, through this series, what I've been kind of trying to do is sort of to lead you to ask a really important question. And it's a question that everybody should ask. And if you haven't asked it, you should ask it. This is a question that everybody should ask at some point in their life. And what we're going to do today is we're going to look at all the evidence, really, that points to the answer to the question. And the question simply is this, who is Jesus? That's the question. And the resurrection, this is so important, the resurrection is what convinced his first century followers that he was, Jesus was in fact the Messiah, that he was the Son of God, that he was God in a body. And the resurrection has been convincing people ever since. Now here's something you need to know. Christians believe that Jesus rose from the dead because a first century follower of Jesus named Matthew documented the life of Jesus and the resurrection. And we believe because a Greek named Mark, who was a friend of Peter, got Peter's story, uh, got in and out of Peter, and and Peter concluded in the first century uh, that Peter said he was telling the truth and Mark documents everything that Peter tells him in his gospel that Jesus actually did rise from the dead. 
And we believe, because a doctor named Luke, who was also a Greek, who travelled around the area of Judea and travelled around the world with the Apostle Paul, came to the conclusion that he'd met enough people who'd seen the resurrected Jesus, that Jesus was alive, and he gave us an account of the life of Jesus, of his death and his resurrection, that we call the Gospel of Luke. And we believe because the Apostle Peter, in two letters that he left the first century church, declared that Jesus rose from the dead. And we believe Jesus rose from the dead because James, the brother of Jesus, concluded his brother was his Lord. Now what's really interesting about James is that James did not believe Jesus was his Lord when Jesus was doing his earthly ministry. He was not impressed by his sermons. He wasn't impressed by his miracles. But James, the brother of Jesus, shows up as the pastor of the church in Jerusalem and he was stoned, he was killed, he was massacred because he will not go along with the religious tradition. Because he insists that his brother, his crucified brother, who rose from the dead, was his saviour and his lord. And we believe because the Apostle Paul, who stepped onto the pages of history as someone who was committed to doing away with the church, concluded that Jesus was in fact the Messiah, he was the Son of God, and that he actually rose from the dead. And he knew this because of a personal encounter, a personal revelation with Jesus Christ, and because he spent so much time with Peter and Andrew and James and John and James, the brother of Jesus. And these extraordinary brave men documented what they saw and what they heard. And they documented what they heard from others who had also seen the resurrected Jesus. And these documents were collected and they were protected. And many years later they were combined and they were put into a volume that we call the New Testament. There were men who were witnesses of and friends of witnesses of the resurrection of Jesus. And besides that, the story of Jesus wasn't worth, even worth telling or even documenting apart from the resurrection. Apart from the resurrection, Jesus was just another Jewish rabbi that kind of went off the rails. Apart from the resurrection, Jesus is just another wannabe Messiah who was ex- executed by Rome. They come and they go. And the people who were closest to Jesus are so excruciatingly honest. In fact, it's one of the reasons you should take their accounts seriously. They do not write themselves into the story as heroes in the story. They write themselves into the story as doubters. Because, in fact, they doubted. They doubted that Jesus was the Messiah. They expect to do what all dead people do. They did not expect a resurrection. Do you know what all dead people do? They stay dead. That wasn't a trick question. (laughs) They stay dead. Nobody, nobody, even his closest followers, even the most committed among them, nobody expected nobody. Nobody was standing outside the tomb, counting down from ten backwards on Easter morning. Ten, nine, eight, seven, cue the sun, six, five. Nobody was out there waiting for the resurrection. Because every single person who loved and was devoted to Jesus believed they had been fooled. That they had been tricked. 
he was not who he claimed to be. Because the problem with Jesus was not what he taught. The problem with Jesus was not what he did. The problem with Jesus was what he claimed about himself. And if he was telling the truth about who he was, clearly he lied because you can't crucify the resurrection and the life. You can't execute God's Messiah that the Jews have been waiting for for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years. Simply, you can't put the Son of God to death. Now, the other person that was an eyewitness and a follower of Jesus who gives us the account is John. And as I said, we've been tracking along with John over these last seven weeks. And John was a witness of both the crucifixion and the resurrection of Jesus. And he details both for us. But like the others who followed Jesus, he did not expect either. He did not expect a crucifixion and he did not expect a resurrection. Do you know what he expected? He expected a king. You see, John tells us that after Jesus had raised Lazarus from the dead, just two miles from Jerusalem, we looked at that last week, remember, it was a miracle that went beyond all other miracles because Lazarus hadn't been dead for a few hours, kind of like just sort of came to because they thought he was dead when he wasn't, but he truly was dead because they'd already had a funeral. He'd been dead for four days, kind of the body was beginning to smell a bit. That's what it says. And just outside of Jerusalem, so many Jewish people put their faith in Jesus after Jesus rose Lazarus from the dead, as he brought him back to life, of the resurrection of Lazarus. Because, you see, it was an undeniable act of God for anybody who saw it. And we are told that many Jewish people put their faith in Jesus. And there was this groundswell of support they had all the momentum. They, they had the crowd on their side now. In fact, John tells us in John eleven forty five. therefore many of the Jews who had come to visit Mary and had seen what Jesus did, i.e. raising Lazarus from the dead, put their faith in him. And the problem was, it was too many who believed in him. And Jesus' enemies back in Jerusalem decided, well, they'd had enough now. I mean, they'd put up with Jesus for so long, but now they'd had enough. Something had to be done. If they didn't do something about Jesus, in their words, the whole world would follow him. Little did they know. They knew Jesus was coming to Jerusalem for Passover. The city would be crowded. And they decided that that was their best opportunity to take him out. And they would wait until after all the festivities were over, as, were people, as people were leaving the city, Thousands and thousands of visitors and travellers in the city at that time. And what they would do, this was their plan, what they would do is that they would, they would isolate Jesus from the crowd, they would arrest him, and then they would make sure that they could convince Rome to execute him. And so as Jesus and his disciples leave the area of Bethany and move towards Jerusalem, the crowd knows he's coming. The city is full of spies, the city is full of fans. There is so much patriotic zeal during Passover in Jerusalem. And Passover, you see, was a reminder to the Jews that God, a long, long time ago, had delivered the nation from the bondage of the Egyptians. And they hoped that one Passover, very soon, it would come along when God would deliver the nation from the bondage of Rome. 
And perhaps this was that Passover. This was the time. Because there was so much momentum behind Jesus. Perhaps it would be during Passover that, that he would rip off his, his rabbinic robe and declare himself king and rescue the Jews. So as he makes his way into the city, he's met by hundreds and hundreds, maybe thousands of fans declaring him Lord, declaring him king. It gets political very quickly. He comes into the city a few days before the final Passover Sabbath. He, he makes his way to the temple. He teaches and he preaches. He works his way freely through the city. People are watching him all the time, waiting for that moment when they can kind of carve him away from the crowds. And while he's there, Judas, well, he kind of runs out of patience. He goes to the temple leaders and he says, hey, listen, I can isolate him for you. I can isolate him from the crowd. In fact, I can isolate him and his few followers at a time that it'll be really easy for you to arrest him. And so he does this deal with the Jewish leaders. Towards the end of that week, after he came into the city, Jesus celebrates the final Passover with the 12 disciples. And while he is there, he increases their expectation that perhaps this is the time when he will declare that he is going to be the king, that he is going to rescue them. And while they're having that meal, Jesus announces that he's establishing a brand new covenant. And for these Jewish young men who had been raised listening to the Torah and being taught the prophets, they knew, they knew that the prophet Jeremiah had prophesied that one day God would in fact declare a brand new covenant with his people. And Jesus indicated that, that this is that time. I'm about to inaugurate the covenant with all of mankind that God promised many years ago. A covenant, he said, that will be established, and then they have no category for this, that would be established in his blood. What? In his blood? And then he said this, the terms and conditions of this new covenant are, are, are very simple. You see, in the past, that the terms and the conditions of a covenant were very complicated because they were given to a very specific group of people. But, but this, this is a covenant for the whole world between God and the human race. And the terms and the conditions are very simple. It is one new command. You are to love each other. Not the way you've been loved, not the way you want to be loved. This isn't do unto others as you would have others do unto you. No, says Jesus, this is a whole new thing. John 15, 12, he says, my command is this, love each other as I have loved you. Gentlemen, he says, you are to love each other, you are to love the world the way I have loved you. And the very next day, he would put on a demonstration of love that would take their breath away. And this was to be the trademark. This was to be the brand of this new movement. Clearly, they thought, he, he is about to declare himself as king. Clearly, he is about to do something for, for the nation. 
But unbeknown to them, Jesus was about to do something for you and for me and, in fact, the whole world. Well, they, they leave that meal that very night, as you know. Judas has betrayed Jesus. He's, he's worked it all out. He's got this plan. Uh, and we know, if you know the gospel stories, they tell you that Jesus is, is eventually he's isolated from the crowd. He, he's in the garden because Jesus knows his pattern. Jesus, Judas knows Jesus' habits. He knows what he will do at certain times. And Jesus is arrested. He's taken to the high priest where he is falsely accused. And then he is beaten. And we kind of move to the first part, really, which is the death of Jesus. Because, you see, later they, they take him to Pilate because they want Jesus executed. And they want him executed really quickly before the crowd changes their mind about who this false Messiah really is. So they take him to Pilate. Now, Pilate, well, he doesn't want anything to do with it. But they convince Pilate to talk to him. And Pilate comes out and says, seriously, look, guys, I can find nothing wrong with this man. There are no charges worthy of death. And they say, he must die. He must die. So Pilate gives in and he decides, you know what, I will have him flogged. In fact, I'll have him beaten within an inch of his life. And surely when I bring him out, beaten and broken and, this, this, and, and bloody, this, this, this wannabe king... Surely the crowd will change their mind and they won't force me to execute their king. And as he has Jesus flogged and he brings him out, he's, he's looking for mercy from the crowd. But instead they say, no, it's not enough. He must die. He must die because he claims to be the son of God. He must die because he claims to be a king. And Pilate... If you are a friend of Caesar, you cannot be a friend of this man. And you cannot allow this man to live. And Pilate relents and he gives in. And John, who was there for all of this, he says in John 19, verse 16, he says, So the soldiers took charge of Jesus, carrying his own cross, he went out to the place of the skull. And again, remember I've been saying all through this that John is writing this gospel and he's writing this as an old man now and he's sort of thinking back. And this is a story for the whole world. And he says, Jesus was taken to the place of the skull. Verse 18, here they crucified him. Notice there are no details given because no details are necessary. Everyone who would hear this story in the first century, in the second century, had seen or had seen the aftermath of a crucifixion. And with him two others, one on each side and Jesus in the middle. And then John, as we've seen through all of this really, John records the words of Jesus from the cross and John gives us a detail that would be unnecessary unless it were true. In fact, he gives us a detail that would be easy to discount or, or show it wasn't true unless it was true. John said that as he stood there gazing at Jesus dying on the cross and yet wanting to look away at the same time, he stood beside Mary, who was Jesus' mother. Verse 26, when Jesus saw his mother there and the disciple whom he loved, that's John describing himself, standing nearby, he said to his mother, dear woman, here is your son. 
And to the disciple, here is your mother. From that time on, this disciple took her into his home. John, he says, Mary is now your mother. And Mary, John is now your son. And this was Jesus' way of saying, take care of my mum. And John said, I I was there. And I heard him utter his last words when he said, verse 30, it is finished. And then he said, "I I I watched with that he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. And then John, well, he does this most unusual thing. And these are words that if you're reading the gospel on your own, you would get to these words perhaps and you would skip over them because, well, they don't seem that significant really. They don't seem to carry any meaning, but they are extraordinarily important. John kind of pauses Remember, he's an old man writing this. He pauses and he reflects and then he makes this statement, not for his immediate audience, but for future generations. For us. For me, for you. And here's what he writes, verse 35. The man, talking about himself, the man who saw it, in other words, I saw this, I didn't hear about it, I didn't read about it, No, I saw it, has given testimony. In other words, I'm swearing to you that this is exactly how it happened. The man who saw it has given his testimony and his testimony is true. He knows, he tells the truth and he testifies so that you. And then it's as if John kind of sort of reaches out through the ages to each one of us and sort of kind of grabs each one of us by the shoulders as if he's standing there in front of us, holding us by the shoulders, looks into our eyes and he says, my testimony is true. And I testify so that you also, like me, an eyewitness, so that you also, even though you were not there to see it, that you also would trust that I am telling you the truth, so that you will respond like I responded to this story, that you also may believe. To which we may respond, well, that's easy, John. So far, so good. So far, we we got a wannabe Messiah that gets executed by Rome. Yeah, I can believe that. So far, you got a rabbi who kind of went off the rails and fooled his followers, and finally the religious leaders caught up with him and, and got rid of him. Yeah, yeah, we can believe that, John. So far, Rome simply crucifies another wannabe king. I mean, yeah, we, we can believe that. That's, that's easy to believe, John. To which John would say, no, 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 no. No, not just that part. What happened next? It's the next part that you will have a hard time believing. But I promise you, I swear to you, that my testimony is true. What happened next? I was there. I saw it all. Because you see, secondly, after the death of Christ, we come to the burial of Jesus And later, he says this in verse 38, later, Joseph of Arimathea, notice a specific name, notice so much detail here, asked Pilate for the body of Jesus. Well, why? 
Well, because you couldn't bury a crucified body unless you bribed someone. The centurion on the site, or in this case, Pilate. They asked Pilate for the body. Now, Joseph was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly because he feared the Jews. With Pilate's permission, he came and took the body away. And he was accompanied by someone who showed up earlier in John's Gospel. Do you remember him? Nicodemus, verse 39. He was accompanied by Nicodemus, the man who earlier had visited Jesus at night. Nicodemus brought a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds, to embalm Jesus' body. Why? Well, because these men expected Jesus to do what dead men always do, which is stay dead. And then in verse 40, taking Jesus' body, the two of them wrapped it up with the spices in strips of linen. This was in accordance with the Jewish burial customs. And this was just John's way of remembering, oh yeah, there'll be people who who heard this or read this account that don't understand all the Jewish customs. So I just want them to understand what happened to such, uh, such an important moment. Verse 41, at the place where Jesus was crucified, there was a garden. And in the garden, a new tomb in which no one had ever been laid. Because it was a Jewish day of preparation, and since the tomb was nearby, they laid Jesus there. This was the way of saying that they were in a hurry. The sun was about to set, and once the sun set on the Sabbath, the Sabbath began. And none of this work would be lawful when the Sabbath began. So they hurriedly prepared Jesus' body for burial, put him in this tomb, this cave, had their servants roll the stone in front of it, and then they left. And John, along with Peter and perhaps others, but for sure, John and Peter, they disappear into the city as well. And we don't know, do we? We don't know what John did that night. We don't know what John and Peter talked about that night. But they thought that this was... Well, they thought, really, that the, these last three years of their life, really, was just, well, a waste of time. They were so convinced Jesus was who he claimed to be and the fact that he was arrested and crucified so quickly. I mean, these events went by so quickly. I mean, they were just beginning to catch up emotionally. Just imagine where they were emotionally. Just imagine the conversations they were having that night. But then thirdly, we come to the resurrection of Jesus. See, we don't know what they did that night. We don't know what they did on Saturday, but John tells us that early Sunday morning they were awakened, assuming they slept at all. They were awakened by someone banging on the door. And certainly their first reaction is that the soldiers, they found us, but then they realise Roman soldiers don't knock. They just kick the door in and come in anyway. So they figured it wasn't the Romans. So they go to the door and they open the door and there's Mary Mary Magdalene. Now, Mary Magdalene was one of Jesus' most devoted followers. She had followed Jesus for a long time because Jesus had delivered her and Jesus had performed a miracle for her. Uh, And she was one of the women that was so grateful because Jesus consistently elevated the dignity of women. And he elevated the dignity of children. In fact, he elevated the dignity of everyone. And she was so brokenhearted like all the women followers were when Jesus was crucified. She's banging on the door and they open the door and she's panicked. She's sobbing. They can barely understand what she's saying. And she says to Peter and to John, John 20 verse 2, they have taken the Lord out of the tomb and we don't know where they have put him. We went to the tomb to make sure his body was properly prepared. 
because remember, men did this, so probably women needed to kind of sort of fix it all back up again. The stone is rolled away, they said. We looked inside and there was no body. Someone. And she assumes what anyone would assume, not a miracle, not a resurrection. No one writes themselves into the story as heroes or believers. None of them believe that Jesus was raised from the dead, although Jesus had told us on many occasions that he was going to do that. She looked into an empty tomb and she assumed what you would assume in the first century, somebody has stolen the body. Somebody has taken the body of our Lord and we don't know where they, whoever they are, where they have put him. And John tells us that whereas they've been hiding the night before, suddenly they feel the urgency of the moment and they knew where Jesus' body had been put the night before. And so John says, verse 3, so Peter and the other disciple, speaking of himself, started for the tomb. Both were running, but the other disciple, talking about himself, outran Peter and reached the tomb first. Now, this is interesting detail. I have a theory. Whether it's the right theory or not, you can ask me afterwards, but I have a theory. By the time John wrote this, I think he chuckled. Remember, he's an old man. By this time, Peter has been executed in Nero's Rome. And maybe John thought to himself, do you know what? I think it's safe to tell this detail. Peter's not here to be embarrassed. I outran him to the tomb. Peter should, people should know that, that I beat Peter to the tomb. And then John kind of steps back and then he realises, yeah, ah, but, okay, but, but if I'm going to tell that part of the story, I have to tell the entire story. Because John says, when I got there, I got to outside of the tomb, verse 5, he, John, bent over and looked in at the strips of linen lying there, but did not go in. Why didn't he go in? It was dark. It was a tomb. Such honesty, though, isn't it? He's no hero, is he? He is as confused as all of Jesus' followers were on the first Easter morning. He said, then eventually my friend Simon Peter finally called up, verse 6. Then Simon Peter, who was behind him, arrived and went into the tomb. And why did he go straight into the tomb? Because he was Simon Peter. And that's what Simon Peter does, doesn't he? I mean, that's what he would always do. Simon Peter didn't wake. Remember, he spoke too soon. He acted too soon. He was always getting into trouble. And so he goes straight into the tomb. And John says, here's what we saw. We saw the strangest thing. We saw what we did not expect to see. Because when somebody steals a body, they take the body and everything with it, don't they? But what we saw in that moment convinced us that the world, our world, has changed forever. Verse 6. He saw the strips of linen lying there, as well as the burial cloth that had been around Jesus' head. The cloth was folded up by itself, separate from the linen. Now, this wasn't a mess. This wasn't a rush job. I mean, thieves would not take the time to kind of disembalm a body. And John finally musters up the courage to step inside. He says, verse 8, finally, I'll admit it, I was late. Finally, the other disciple who had reached the tomb first, I I do want you to know that, by the way, also went inside. And then John gives us his formula. And this, this is a formula we find throughout the gospel, what I've been saying week after week after week. 
This is a formula he wants to leave his readers with because it takes us to the epicentre of the Christian faith. And John said, speaking of himself, he saw. And when he saw, he put two and two together and he believed. And his world changed. Because the resurrection of Jesus reframed his entire life. It reframed everything about his life. Suddenly it dawned on him that everything Jesus taught was true. And in the moment when it dawned on John that we don't know where Jesus is, but clearly he has risen from the dead. I saw him crucified, he says. I saw him die. I saw him embalmed. I saw him buried. And now he has risen. And suddenly, everything lines up for John. Who could imagine so great a mercy? What heart could fathom such boundless grace? He invited a tax collector to follow. He elevated the dignity of every single person. He spoke to centurions, the rich, the poor, the empowered, the disempowered. The God of ages has stepped down from glory to wear my sin and bear my shame. This was his message. In fact, he's told us that. In fact, he tells us that at the beginning of his gospel, John 1, 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Don't ask me to explain it, he would say. All I can say is this, verse 14, the Word, which is God, became flesh and made his dwelling among us. The best way I can describe it, he would say, is this. It's as if the light of the world entered the world and lit up the world for us. And on that Easter morning, when I recognised that he had risen from the dead, well, it all came together for me. And John and Peter and the others would eventually see Jesus alive from the dead. They would have conversations. And John, you should read them, he recalls many of those conversations but, but one in particular that I just want to finish on, that I want to read to you, is this. You see, when Jesus was crucified, and everybody knew that the game was over, and, and there was no movement to keep moving, there was no cause to keep going, there was nothing to keep alive because Jesus declared so much about himself. This wasn't like some of the other movements in culture, where when, uh, say, the leader goes away or the leader is assassinated, People, well, the people want to keep the dream alive or they want to keep the the, the ideas alive. They want to keep the teaching alive. They want to keep the whole movement going, keep it alive, even though the leader has gone. But you see, the problem is with Jesus is that there was no teaching to keep alive because Jesus, so much of his message was all about him. So there was no future. And when they realised that there was no future, they scattered. Peter and John, they stayed in town Some of the disciples went back to Bethany, where Lazarus lived. Some of the other disciples, well, we don't know where they went, probably back to their homes. They just knew that there was a price on their head, and we read that one of those disciples was Thomas. John gives us the detail of Jesus' first encounter with Thomas. He says this in John 20, 24. Now, Thomas, called Didymus, one of the twelve, was not with the disciples when Jesus came, Or he could have said that it was not with us when Jesus came to to the rest of us. So the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. Thomas, Thomas, we've seen the Lord, he's alive. 
because Jesus' sightings were circulating all over Jerusalem and all in that vicinity, you see. Thomas heard about this, that people are saying that Jesus is back from the dead. And, and Thomas makes his way back to the area, makes his way back to the city, and then he finally reconnects with the disciples. And they're like, Thomas, where have you been, mate? Where have you been? The Lord, he is alive. But you see, Thomas, well, Thomas isn't superstitious. Thomas felt like he spent three years of his life chasing a false messiah. So he ain't going to spend the rest of his life chasing a ghost and a rumour. Verse 25, but he said to them, unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my finger where the nails were and put my hand into his side, I will not believe it. John, look, I love you, mate, but your words are not enough. Peter, I love you, but I think you're seeing things. And the rest of you guys, look, I love you guys, but, but no. I'm not going to dedicate the rest of my life talking about a dead man who came back to life unless I see him for myself. I mean, let's be honest, who can blame him? Verse 26, a week later, so much detail here. A week later, his disciples were in the house again and Thomas was with them. And John says, look, I know what I'm going to tell you now is odd, but I'm just telling you how it happened. I've just asked you to trust that my testimony is true. I, 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 I have suffered for what I believe. I've been exiled for what I believe. I'm telling you, this is how it happened. We were in the room and the doors, I promise you, Though the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. And of course, he said, peace be with you, because he scared us to death. And then he looked at Thomas, verse 27. Then he said to Thomas, put your finger here, see my hands, reach out your hand and put it into my side. It's me. It's me, Thomas. Stop doubting and believe. In fact, the literal translation of this verse is this. Do not be unbelieving, but believing. Do not be unbelieving, but believing. And John included this little piece of narrative because, again, it goes back to his central theme. Do not be unbelieving, but believing. Verse 28, Thomas said to him, my Lord and my God. And then verse 29 then Jesus told him, because you have seen me, you have believed. Thomas, listen, I understand why you doubted. Thomas, I understand why you didn't believe. Thomas, you are just like the rest of these guys. And by the way, don't let them fool you. Don't let them give you a nickname like Doubting Thomas, because none of them believe. All of them doubted. Not one single guy in this room believed I was risen from the dead until they saw me. Even when they looked into that empty tomb, they didn't believe. So don't be deceived. Don't be an unbeliever. Be believing. And then are you ready for this? At that moment, Jesus leaves his immediate context and it's as if he looks through the ages and he looks at you, and he looks at me. And knowing that this story will be told for generations and for centuries with you in mind and with me in mind, he says to the group gathered that day, blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. You believe, he says, because you've seen. 
But blessed is that future generation. Blessed are the people who come after you. Blessed are the people you tell, John. Blessed are the people that read your account. And Matthew, blessed are those who read your account. And blessed are those future generations that hear and believe but have not seen. And then John closes his account with this. He closes it with an invitation for all of us. And his invitation is simple. It's what he has said throughout the whole of his gospel. John would say, look, I just want you to believe that. And then I want you to trust in. I want you to believe that my testimony is true and I want you to believe that Jesus is who he claimed to be and once you're convinced that he is who he claimed to be, I want you to take one more step. I want you to place your trust in. I want you to believe that and I want you to believe in. And here's how he says it, verse 30 to 31. He did many other miraculous signs in the presence of his disciples. We saw them, which are not recorded in this book. But these, the, the ones that I've selected, the, the conversations I've selected, the signs I've selected, the miracles I've selected, these are written, not simply that you would know what happened, these are written by me and I've ordered them in such a way that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. That's the believe that. I want you to take my word for what he said about himself. I want you to believe that. And then I want you to do one more thing, says John. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, he is the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. I want you to believe that. But, he says... I want you to personally trust in. And why? Well, if we were to ask John why, this would be his message. He would say, I'll tell you why. Because there came that morning that sealed, that punctuated, that authenticated the promise, his buried body began to breathe. And out of the silence that we thought would be silent forever, the roaring lion declared, the grave has no claim on me. For God so loved the whole world. John concluded, after being with Jesus, that he gave his only son, the light of the world, the word became flesh, that whoever, here it is, whoever believes in him would, would not be lost to God shall not perish, but have, John says, and don't ask me to explain it all, I'm just telling you, would have eternal life. That was Jesus' invitation to John. That's God's invitation to all of us. And my hope is that would become personal for you. That based on John's account, you would believe that Jesus truly is the Son of God that he is the Messiah, that he is the Saviour, that he is the Redeemer. But not just believe about, or just believe that as factual evidence, but that you would trust in. Simply, you would trust in Jesus as your Saviour and as your Lord. That you would put your life in his hands. You would go all in 
believe that and trust in. That's the invitation of the gospel. Let's pray. Lord our God, we, we thank you that we've been able to kind of take a, a helicopter ride over the, the death and the burial and the resurrection of Christ. We thank you for so much that John gives us here. We thank you that John, as we've been seeing over these last eight weeks, John is trying to lead us to the point where we believe that Jesus is the Son of God and that by believing, by putting our trust in, we might have life in his name. Lord, for many of us, we know the reality of that. We know the difference that that has made in our lives, that we are followers of Christ because of your saving work in our lives. Maybe for some of us here, we've never taken that step. Maybe we believe a lot about Jesus. Maybe we would even say, yeah, I believe that Jesus was the Son of God. But we've never taken that final step to trust in, to say it's all about Jesus. I trust in the fact that he died for me, that he took my sin, he took my punishment, and that I believe in him as my Saviour and my Lord. Lord, wherever we stand, may we know, may we understand, may we declare that in Christ we have a living hope. In his name we pray. Amen.